The Legendarium podcast is sponsored by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. Follow along with our current series or enjoy some of the classics by visiting thelegendariumpodcast.com where you can sign up for your free trial membership. Click the sponsor link on our website for a free audiobook. Welcome to The Legendarium. It is book three of our Belgariad series. Uh, this time it is Magician's Gambit. Craig, Ryan, and Ken get together and talk about that book three. Uh, each of us bringing up our favorite things. Hope you had a favorite. Uh, send us a quick note at thelegendariumpodcast.com. And Ryan is done yawning. Okay, here we go. Uh, it's the Legendarium Podcast. Welcome, everybody, uh, to the third installment of our Belgariad series. Uh, today we're discussing Magician's Gambit. Uh, yeah, book three, Belgariad. Very excited. Ryan, you're probably excited. I we're we're over the hump and we're cruising down and it's always good to get over humps. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. I'm gonna leave that one alone uh, and I can't just introduce I you guys. Set him up with a t-ball pitch, basically. Black Eyed Peas would agree <laughs> with you. Uh, all right. Well, let's introduce you guys now that I already have. Uh, he doesn't like baseball or apparently America. It's Ryan Bruckman. Well, in that case, I'll do the rest of the podcast in my British accent. <laughs> Okay, Captain Jack. And he's older than dirt, but younger than some solar systems. It's Ken Johnson. It's always fun when a book ends with mass wanton destruction. Okay. All right. So, Ryan, do you want to just take us away here on book three? I'm prepared to take you away on a journey, an exciting journey, everyone. Uh, Doesn't sound like it. A long, long We'll start like we usually do by reviewing what occurred in this last book. How does that sound? Make it snappy. No, not at all. Okay, everybody. One of these prologues is not like the other. Our previous preambles provided us a glimpse into the story of Riva, Torak, and the Orb. This one ignores most of that and discusses how the god Ol found himself with a following. Oh, that was cool. Yeah. Good story. It's important, really. It is. Mainly because we need to know who Ol and the Gorim are in later sections of the story. But we get back to our group and we find our intrepid band being pulled off their chase of Zedar the Apostate for two reasons. Number one... We find out Zedar no longer has the orb, as it has been taken away from him by Katuchik. Katuchik. Something like that. Too many consonants. What does he call him? The magician. Katuchik the magician. The magician. The highest ranking. Gambit. Yes. The highest ranking of the Grawlin priests. And number two, they've been summoned by one of the gods and Belgarath's master, Aldur, to visit him in Aldur's Vale. And the quickest route to the Vale requires passing through the land of Merigor, which is essentially one giant haunted nation. It is said that anyone who ventures into Maragor loses their mind, so in order to protect the troop, Belgarath and Polgara put everyone's mind to sleep as they traverse the haunted land. We discover that Garion's mind is not entirely asleep as he and the voice in his mind begin to converse, and we get a description and we get description after description of various ghosts and ghouls who appear in front of Garion. I totally know who that is now, by the way. The voice in his head. Yeah, I'm very excited for this. Anyway, go on. Garion and the voice in his head work together to help Garion come to grips with what he is headed for and exactly and who exactly is this voice that shares his mind. While we never get a definitive answer or name for the voice, we know that it carries heavy authority as it commands even the wailing god Mara to cease his attempts to destroy Sanedra. The troop is able to make it out of Maragor and into the Vale, but not before Garion does something impossible in bringing back to life a dead calf inside of a mystic cave. Once they enter the... Was va- a, it was a horse. It was a foal. Yeah. Was foal. A... Sorry. Not a cow. They didn't bring that. It's a baby horse, people. Right. 
Yeah, okay. Baby horse. <laughs> Once they enter the Vale, they all meet the god Aldur, and Garion begins training and using the will and the word with Belgarath. The story is short, or their stay is short-lived as they almost resume their journey to reclaim the orb by way of Cthulhu Murgos. You know, the capital city of Bad Guyville? <laughs> and it so is <laughs> when you get there. While previously, uh, while previously, wow, I really struggled with this sentence apparently. Yeah, this is, this is uh, getting, this is getting confusing. I know, I do that well. Uh, previously they had traveled over the mountains. This time they have to go under them and pass through the kingdom of the Olgos, or the people of Ul. See, I told you the prologue would be important. Where they meet the revered Gorm and pick up a reluctant new addition to our little fellowship, the Olgo Relg, who aside from his extreme religious piety, which may not be a word. Piety. Piety, thank you. That's yeah. a word. That's a word. You he, actually wrote that down. You wrote down piety. Yes, I did. Okay. He also has a unique ability to phase through solid objects, which comes in very handy later to both save and scar our friend Silk for life. Once they arrive in Cthulhu Murgos, they enter the Grolem Temple, where they work their way to meet up with Katuchik, who battles Belgarath in an incredible wizard-slash-magician duel, but ends up shooting himself in the foot by attempting the one forbidden action, the unmaking of anything. The castle collapses, and we find ourselves with two new characters to carry into the next story, Taiba, a slave woman whose heritage is very important, and an innocent young boy who only says the word errand. And mm. that is Magician's Gambit. Nice. Yeah, and there's um, uh, a really cool description that she skipped over, obviously, because this is just a, a you know a quick recap. But the description of Cthul, um, what what's it called? Cthul Murgos? Cthul yeah, Cthul Murgos. It's really cool. And it's it's uh, fairly brief. It's not like he details every rock and every street and every stone. Um, but the little glimpse that it gives you of this disgusting, dark um, city where there's blood sacrifices and it's, uh, you know, it's a, a mile high mountain and they're basically the whole mountain feels like it's on fire. It's dripping blood or something. Great. Fantastic. Picture in your mind the evilly capital of Evilville and it's pretty much this city. It's, yeah. And I mean, why not? Um, you know what it reminded is, me of? Credit Shaw. Um, I guess bit. in a way, just you know, a thousand spires and. All um, that. But yeah, I I like that uh, this is a very simple story of good versus evil, and the good guys go to Evilville, like you say, Ryan, mm-hmm. and and guess what it is? It's very evil. Love it. Yeah. Very simple, very straightforward, and you know we're not trying to. He doesn't try to play with any of this. Uh, they're good people, just misunderstood. No, this the no. people here are all terrible people, pretty much, and they're all preparing for war. But let's uh, let's kind of take a sec a back here. up a little bit. Back up a little bit out of the uh, the end of the story. Um, I want to know what your guys' thoughts were when you first started reading into the beginning of the story after the prologue, and it wasn't Garion's point of view you were reading. That was weird, uh, and it it that kind of happened. Also, it seemed like it happened a little bit toward in the the, the very last chapter when it was describing Wolf um, and leading the party up toward. Uh, the, the his little final battle. It, it happened um, once in a while. You, but yeah, there, that was there. weird. We start with Princess Sinedra, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so she, it's all about her feelings toward the rest of the crew and how does she feel about Garion and all that stuff. It was, it was a little jarring, uh, but I, I think it served a great purpose, which was now that we've had two books to kind of get to know these characters and, um, and, and how Garion sees them. Now we get to, experience them through somebody else's eyes as well. Mm-hmm. I thought that was useful uh, and nice. 
it, it told me something else that we pretty much already knew, you know, into the second book. And that's the moment I saw that it was from Sinedra's perspective, I thought, okay, this ties Sinedra and Garion together as they're now the narrators, not, not Garion is or the narrator's perspective. It's these two now have the perspective. It, it, it just joins them a little, which we, we all know. I mean, if you're paying even the remotest bit of attention, that's where this is heading. And the other thing that it teaches me or tells me is that uh, uh, David Eddings, not necessarily the best at understanding teenage girls uh, <laughs> or women in general. Um, I think we discussed in the in the Mistborn podcast how that that can be kind of a pitfall for many authors, yeah. uh, trying too hard to get into the mindset of somebody of the opposite uh, gender. And uh, and it, there's nothing really egregious here or anything like that. Uh, it's just... I would say, how familiar are you with being a teenage well, woman? <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, could, be, I could be very wrong, but uh, to me it felt a little off. That's why I'm trying to get my wife to read it so she can call us out on that. There you go. Yeah, I don't think she'll have a problem with Any of our female listeners anyway. who want to let us know how off we are about any female perspective, we happily accept the uh, oh, yeah. criticism there. I, of course, know all about what it's like to be a teenage girl. I absolutely believe that to be true, Ken. There you go. So anyway. Anyway, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that it's something that you guys picked up on as you were reading there because this also kind of gives us a little bit of um, – foreshadowing without giving too much away the fact that we're going to need a separate narrative to carry part of the story with Sinedra. Um I did think it was kind of it is a little jarring when you first come in to be like wait a minute we haven't had a different perspective to mm-hmm. read from until now um, but it's nice to kind of get both sides of that relationship and everything but even in this book she's already split off from the group as we get right, down the road right. a little ways if if I were to guess now how the next book is going to start it's going to be again from Sinedra's perspective and it will be the company coming back um, to the mountain that she's hiding in um, so don't tell me if I'm right that's fine mm-hmm. but uh, that's that's what I would guess uh, we're going to get a lot more from her yeah I, I think you're you're absolutely right we're going to get more from her um, not necessarily that that's what's going to happen next but the fact is is she has a huge role to play in this story, and so does Gary, and we're going to have to take, they're going to be on separate paths for a little bit. So that's, it's nice to see that we're, he's easing us into that without just breaking us when they actually separate. Right. Right. So, um, speaking of other interesting, jarring thing, I wouldn't really say jarring, but um, how about uh, the number of gods that show up in this one compared to the rest of them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this let's count they- it off. There's Mara, um, there's Ul. Uh, and we do catch a glimpse of Torak, right? He's asleep, but is that that's him? That's his face we, that we're we, looking at behind the altar. We they get pictures and imagery it. of him. Yeah, it is not him. It's not oh, actually okay. him, but that's, okay. that is his face. That's okay. That's what plus, I was wondering. Plus, we get Alder. Yes, and we have Alder yeah. in the veil there. Um, this is kind and that's of, after we get what's her name in the first in the second book. We have Issa. Who, Issa, thank you. Whose spirit shows up um, at the bitter end of book there. two? Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, having gods show up and interact in this way reminds me a little bit of, of uh, Greek and Roman mythology that, mm-hmm. you know, where the gods aren't just, yeah, they're really powerful, but they're not perfect. But, yeah, they seem to interact with mortals a lot. Um, and so it reminded me a little bit of that, not in any other way that I can think of, mostly because mm-hmm. I'm not all that familiar with Greek mythology. 
but uh, yeah, it's I, I I kind of want them to be more fleshed out characters, but I don't know. Maybe maybe gods don't deserve that. The one of the things that I find very interesting is that the gods in this, um, in most stories, especially in Greek mythology and everything, it they are playing with mortals as as pawns. I mean, there's mm. a reason this was called Pawn of Prophecy in the first book. And they're utilizing all their chess pieces uh, to make something happen. And so one of the things that I appreciated is that on page, in mine it's page 56, they're going through Maragorn. It's when Garion and the voice are speaking Ryan, to each other. Ryan is using the mass market paperback for anybody keeping track. Yeah, that's the uh, pink one. Whereas, yes. whereas Craig and I were using the uh, we're using the newer the version, volume one, yeah, volume two, the, the two the two volume version. Anyway, yeah. go so on. We're, we're in Maragor and we're having the conversation between Gary and, and the voice in his head in a little bit, and he's he's telling him exact, trying to explain to him what's going on and giving him a little bit more perspective as to what's happening here, um, it, explaining that there are now two possibilities. Oh yeah, that something happened that broke the one timeline into two possibilities. And now they're going to have to come back together, and we need to either reset it to go where it was going, or it's going to go totally towards destruction. And uh, there's a the paragraph here that I really, really like here. Um, That's the whole reason I came into existence in the first place. In a very special way, you're the rock that I've thrown. If you hit the other rock just right, you'll turn it and make it go where it was originally intended to go. And if I don't, Father's window gets broken. It's very simple, but it we're again playing with this idea and every time they meet one of the gods and they recognize who Garion is it's this realization of that's the horse we bet on that's what's going on and so they're all giving their blessing and everything but it brings them as much as uh, Garion is their pawn and 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 what and uh, the rest of that fellowship is all part of this prophecy the gods almost to me seem on an equal level with them in the sense that they don't have any more control than who they selected and what they can do to help them. You know, whereas in, say, Greek mythology or whatever, the gods could make things harder on the mortals. They could, you know, make it easier by doing other things. In right. this one, it's not so much that case. It's, come on, guys, we picked you. Do do good for us. Right. Yeah, that's a little confusing. Um, what? So what makes them gods? It, it's interesting, and, and it seems like the only thing that, that really, so far, sets them apart is longevity. And the fact that they were first, they could and so they created. They, well, they, they created, created the earth. Yeah, but now, you know. Yeah. Now what? What? And I, I think I, it's my. I, I expect that that'll be fleshed out in books four and five a little bit better. I don't know if I'm right, but you know that's part of the fun of predicting. I would. I would assume that we will get a better glimpse into what separates the gods and the humans when we, when we deal more with Torak. And we have to deal with yeah. how to deal with Torak, and we have to understand who he is and what he is, in order to overcome the the situation with him. I expect so. ultimately it comes down to Alder and his armies versus Torak and his armies, and we get this big, big grand. Which That's, is interesting you put that because I've, I'm not going to claim this to be a fact, and someone's going to yell at the podcast because it's probably going to be wrong. <laughs> I believe Ul is actually the head god, right? And but, so it would be. Ull and his armies, Aldor just happens to be like the sorcerer training. Right. You know, but it, he's, the, he's the McGonagall. At the beginning of Pawn of Prophecy, <laughs> oh, wow. that's that's the way it kind of sets out, is Alder and Belgarath 
kind of on one side and Torak and his people on the other. And Alder has the orb and Torak wants the orb and he takes the orb. And mm-hmm. this is where everything starts into motion. And, and it, it does seem like Ol is, you know, the head you know, of the uh, see, seven I, of them. And I didn't you know, really or, get that impression that he like was the, the oldest, head. He was just really kind of may, separate. Maybe I shouldn't say the head. I, I, he feels like the older brother, you know. He feels like the oldest I'm the, the oldest brother. Yeah. We'll have you to know? look into it and, and find it, out it, But right. it looks like these two are the two that set everything in motion, and that's where, that's where the big fight's going to be. Yeah. Right. To me. I don't know. Um, so speaking of the gods, uh, let's fast forward again to the end of the story. Um, and and Katuchik he tries to unmake the orb right uh, to uncreate the orb uh, and it pretty Which much brings down idea. brings down the mountain everybody's got to run away he gets vaporized and Garion's like what the heck just happened and uh, and and Pol or Polgara she explains it to him she says yeah he tried to unmake the orb and then she says the mother of gods will not permit unmaking what? Which uh, is that's the first and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the first mention we get of the mother of the gods. It's the first mention of the mother of the gods. Uh, the idea of unmaking was right. Was we've heard of earlier. it was approached yeah, earlier, earlier in the veil. In the veil, Belgrath talks about that, but we don't understand. He never explains why. It's just you know it, it's it is not forbidden. allowed. It's forbidden. Yeah. When Polgara brings that up and says the mother of the gods doesn't allow, that, it's like oh wait a minute. Oh well, wait a minute. Mama. There's a there's an even higher level here. You know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Okay. And and it's one more thing. Please forgive me. Uh, not just you two, but everybody else. It's one more thing that's like, oh, wow, that sounds a lot like Tolkien. <laughs> oh, there's what? There's, so there's God, God, and then there's gods. And then there's wizards. Right. And I'm then con- there's everybody else. I am thoroughly convinced that even going through a, you know. We could read a Brad Wendy's- Thor book. A Wendy's drive-thru, and they're going to have a special new time slot, and Craig's going to be like, that's basically second breakfast. <laughs> that's, that's straight out of Tolkien. Uh, you got to admit, this, this, is not, this is not that hard a stretch. It's no, no. It's not that hard of a stretch. <laughs> it, it's not that hard of a stretch, but it's also not that hard of a stretch to say this is a common theme in fantasy sure, or sure. In, in books, is to have one more level. You know, we're we're the bad guy, but we're not the bad bad guy. Even There's if you always go back, somebody that's more evil, you know, or more sinister, or more in power. I mean, even if you go back, you brought up the Greek and Roman gods. Even they had a, that familial hierarchy inside of them. We right. So it's yes, you're right. It's right out of Tolkien, but that's also out of another few books too. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering about this mother of the gods and if. Can we bring up the voice yet? That's, well, yeah, and if this has anything to do with the voice in Garion's head. Now, when you were reading a section a moment ago, that made me think, because originally I thought, oh, it's got to be the father of the gods. That's, right, yeah. that's who's in Garion's head. But then you were reading the conversation between the two of them, and the voice says, this is why I was created. Like, this is why I came into being. And that tells me, no, no, so that can't be the father of the gods. Dang it! I thought I had it all figured out. I still think I well, I still thought that, but so I'm I'm not bringing up anything regarding the voice or playing with anything there, mainly because if you are if you enjoy that mystery, don't get on Wikipedia and read the summaries because in the first summary of Pawn of Prophecy, it actually tells you who the voice is. Oh, I'm I actually I think I have read that, but I'm glad I don't remember it. I was gonna say I'm glad I'm did not read that. Because I'm going through waiting to try and 
pulled, and see if I can pull it out. Like, did I miss it? And that's, you know, they brought it up earlier and I just missed it. Right. Um, and I don't think that's the case. I just think that that was a poor Wikipedia entry, which is very common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is why I also haven't read the linguistics paper yet. Um, yeah. For anybody who follows us really, really closely on Facebook, you might have caught that uh, uh, there's a gentleman out there by the name of Andrew uh, who in his um, undergrad years mm-hmm. wrote a paper a fairly extensive one on the pronunciation of names and places in the Belgariad. Yeah. Uh, so I'm actually really excited to see if we can get him on here because uh, like Tuchik really I mean I'm I'm taking my best stab but yeah. uh, but yeah. we're going to need some professional help here. Well and he comes from that whole region of where I mean it's several atypical consonants thrown together at the very beginning, like Catholmurgos and, you know, Rakathol and all. And I'm, I'm fascinated by all of those, the, the geography and, and the words and the names and how they tie together. And st- I, I, I'm excited to read this paper because I'm a geek when it comes to languages like that, but I can't do it yet because I'm, I don't want to be spoiled. I, yeah. I, I want to add one more. I'm going to add one more log to the voice fire and then we'll move on. Um, I think it's very interesting and a bit surprising that this voice in Garion's head when he is able to take over Garion's body a bit, uh, that he has the authority and power to command even the gods. Right. And I think that's part of the reason why you might have been inclined to think it's the father or mother of the gods there. Yeah. Right. But if it's not one of those two and it has the ability and power to command the gods and say, nope, you cannot mess with these people. They are under my protection. That's, I mean... Is it the earth? <laughs> oh, sweet Gaia. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know. It's, uh, I, when when they're in there, in the scene with Mara, the god Mara, right. and Mara sees Sinedra, and, you know, we didn't really talk about it. nuts. In, yeah, we didn't talk about it in the, re- in the recap, but... The entire con- the entire area of Maragor was um, was wiped out by was Sinedra's wiped out people. by yeah, by the Tolnedrans. They were just pillaged, and that's all. The ghosts were people as they appear. They're ghosts of people who'd been hacked apart, and right, things like that. It, it and was, they appear as they had been hacked apart. Yeah, and it's very it's a very so. visual thing. But when they're in there with the god Mara, and he sees Sinedra, and he freaks out, and he's sitting there trying to destroy her mind. And saying, I will kill her, and then I'll give her life again, and I will kill her again, and, I'll just, and I will pull the life from her multiple times. Like, to have this Garion step forward and being the voice and say, no, you may not, and, you know, trust me, you'll be happy again one day. I, it was just, to me, that was such a phenomenal scene. Yeah. And it added so much to the the weight and mystery of what's going on with Garion right now. Right. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, I concur and have nothing more to add. There is a lot of growing up in this book for Garion. Yeah. It, it really takes a – he takes a step forward in terms of accepting who he is and what he's got to do. And, and it's it's funny and, and almost a little bit unrealistic in my mind that he accepts it all in stride. Mm-hmm. Meaning the way he reacts in the first couple of books to things that happen or things he has to do. And he's like, oh, woe is me. And Paul won't talk to me. And now he's he's not as whiny anymore. He's kind of accepted that, hey, I'm a sorcerer. I OK, I get that I have responsibility. And he's kind of taken that on and he's. That's he's actually that's one of those Which things like. that character wise has kind of taken me out a little bit and made me go. Yeah, I'm not sure that. 
any reasonably reasonable human being would actually act this way. Because how many times has Aunt Paul said, I'll, I'll tell you later. Right. Yeah, you'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you when you're older. I'll explain later. Uh, you don't need to know that right now. I would go and think of any other 16-year-old kid. I would go nuts. I would be hounding her all the time about right. that. And I mean, I guess there's something to the idea that she is not a woman to be meddled with. Uh, but, you know, but all the same, isn't he going to at least wonder? But, that, that's kind of but what, he just kind of goes on with That's kind of what book three is, though, is now is later. You know what I mean? Book three is the later. I'll tell you later. Well, now we're, we're at later. Now he's finding things out, which is kind of neat. There, I, I will throw a couple things into that thought process. Is one, I would agree with you in the sense that, it, you know, you would be curious or whatever, but we've also established that Garion was raised Sendarian, essentially. Yeah. Right? And they're not a super questioning or curious people, very sensible. Um, and if you're told your entire life that I'll tell you later and you're used to that, then yeah, you maybe. might not be inclined to really question as much later. Right. Yeah, but even in life. Pawn of Prophecy, he was a pretty inquisitive Sindarian. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. Ju- I'm just saying it's it's something to his character that you could potentially make, be, make an excuse make for. Make an excuse yeah. for yeah. Right there. And the other thing is, is a lot of the information that he's getting now um, from from Pole and from Belgarath and everything has, is when they realize that the voice is there and that he's getting at it. So obviously he's he realizes and all these other people realize that something bigger is in play now. And so maybe he's just kind of being willing to go with the flow a little more because he's he's relinquished that idea of controlling it himself. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah let's go on. Man. Um, okay, let's see. What about, um, let's talk, oh, Relg. Uh, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. so Relg. The Ogos in general, but we, we do need to talk about Relg. Right, Relg, because he's a member of the company, he leaves um, the land of the Ogos with the company, uh, he's a religious fanatic. He had, in fact, uh, been gaining quite a following back in his homeland uh, and was even set to challenge their uh, prophet king, I guess, whatever. The Gorim. The Gorim. The Gorim. Um, the Gorim but uh, but the, their god, Ul, shows up, rebukes him, and says, no, you're going with this group. Um, and so he does. He gets uh, a but, mighty, <laughs> mighty and whole, swift smackdown, doesn't he? The whole time that he's out, he's, he spends a ton of time praying uh, and worrying and hand-wringing. Um, it, it's almost like this is... Uh, how an outsider would look at some bizarre amalgamation of a bunch of of uh, the real world's different religions, mm-hmm. um, because yeah. he, he, you know, he's like like a Muslim. He would have to stop and pray all the time, uh, like a uh, like a certain strain of uh, Bible Belt Christians. He's just wringing his hand hands all the time about sin. Um, in yeah. fact, there's a great line toward the end of the book when they're trying to sneak around somewhere, um, and they're all supposed to look kind of like miserable and dejected. Uh, and Silk says to him, "Try to look like you're suffering." <laughs> I am, Relg said, because he's got a cold. <laughs> and he says, "But you have to look like it." Silk told him, "Think about sin. That ought to make you look miserable." <laughs> you know, like that's the, uh, that's what they've all picked up on. Is this guy just worries all the time he about just, yeah. about his sinful nature? Uh, so he gets really annoying um, 
but uh, but also quite useful with that magic power you talked about. He can he can find any cave and he can walk through stone to get to it. Mm-hmm. I think, and he can bring other people through stone. Right. I I love the uh, the response Silk has after that, and from <laughs> then until in, well for until until further notice, I'll say any time. Relg uses his ability. Mm-hmm. Silk can't handle it. He can't like oh, right. look because it just it freaks him out so much. But there's a great action sequence where they have to take out a. There's a a Grawlum oh, yeah, waiting yeah, yeah. for them, and he sits there and he's just waiting. Relg is sitting there waiting. The other guys are fighting, and he sees the the Gollum, the Grawlum priest. Just he comes around and he's getting ready to gather his will together to, to try and do something. And Relg grabs him and shoves him against a boulder. And starts to push him into the boulder, and, just and then just keeps pushing, and just li- and like he's like he's sinking into peanut butter almost. Yeah, pushes him in there, and then it says uh, he gets him in there, pulls his hands out, and then the hands just go limp. So these two hands are sticking out of a boulder, just hanging there. And I was like, like that was an inc- that was an awesome sequence, and that was the beautiful visuals there on that. And I love that ability that he has, and and that he uses it. But it's really, it's the he's a character that I find fascinating. Because I don't want to like him because of how irritating he is, but he's useful enough that I that I care about I care about what's happening with Relg. Um, I don't want you know it's one of things I don't want a stray arrow to take him out. Yeah, but and the thing is, you, his annoyance is something that is read through the entire group. It's not like he's being annoying and everyone else is just like okay, whatever. Like they're all irritated by it and they start to learn to work with it. Belgarath has to teach him that you know what your God is a patient God. He he can you can wait for five <laughs> minutes to wait. pray. I love that line. It's like <laughs> he's patient. He'll wait. You know yeah. you can pray you, on your horse. Exactly. It's okay. you, we don't have to stop every time. It, he he presents in the story. He provides a very important aspect uh, for the rest of the group, and that's he he brings uh, ign- uh, innocence. I was going to say ignorance, but it's innocence, and he he brings tolerance. Or more specifically, the need for tolerance. Because here's a guy who has lived his entire life under the mountain doing nothing but but being religious. Mm -hmm. Doing nothing but praying at the appropriate time and making... Yeah, uh, his entire world is being blown up right now. Yeah, his entire world is just gone. I mean, take somebody... You know, which is very apparent when he sees the sky for the first time, right? And so, I mean, it's it's him being getting used to new things. He catches a cold because he's never I mean, he's never caught a cold because he's never been exposed to the outside <laughs> atmosphere. You know, how about when he gets rid of the cold? How he gets rid of the cold? Well, that was weird. Just oh, the, by walking through by walking stone, but the cold couldn't go through the, stone. Yeah. <laughs> what? So that okay. was, that was freaky. That was weird. And and, and we learned very I quickly want that power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But everybody wants to complain about how much he's got to pray and how he's got to do that. And why he's a whiner. Everybody realizes. Boy, okay. what would that be like, Ken? Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, but the, the reason I make such a big deal about Relg and his <laughs> his religious piety and what you're talking about here, um, I'm going to challenge your use of the word innocence because he's very aware of sin, and he makes people very aware that he's aware of sin and the thoughts there. So he's not. He's not innocent of it. Yeah, and I don't mean innocence in the sense and of a child. I mean, you know. The only reason the only reason why I believe that we have to challenge that is because we're going to meet a character, a little a young boy who's so innocent that he can hold the orb. Right. Um, and that that is a distinction that's important to make. Um, 
but he and the, one of our other new characters, who we barely meet at all at the end of the story, but we know is now a bigger deal. But she cl- she clearly quickly becomes important. Yeah, is Taiba, who is a slave who, when they meet her, she's pretty much naked. And Relg has a conniption about it and just, you know, leave her to die. Yeah. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. And you know that his perspective and her perspective are going to cross each other quite a bit in the coming in the coming books. Right. Um, and I think that they're going to become interesting characters. And it's, I don't know, David Eddings is doing what many great fantasy authors do, is that as the story continues on, continues on, we keep introducing so many characters, we don't know who is who anymore. That is, uh, yeah, that is accurate. It's like, I, there was a, a, they met a character toward the end of the book. Oh, and now I can't, dang it, I can't even remember the circumstances anymore. They met a character... Uh, or talked about a character that that somebody had killed back in like book one or something, and I, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad oh, that yeah. you told me what had happened because I remember the event, but certainly I wouldn't have pulled that name out of thin air. Anyway, that was a really bad example because I couldn't remember it. I can't even think about it now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I'm not sure who you're referring to. I can think of the. Uh, it's it's very common in in fantasy literature in general to have a ton of characters and ones that we throw in we have our our group that we follow that's one thing that i will that i will grant to uh, the lord of the rings series we st- we do have quite a few characters to follow and especially if you go into the wide world but inside that story itself we had two groups that we followed we had uh, frodo and sam and then you had the rest the of the rest, gr- the yeah. rest. Um, which made it a little easier to kind of follow the stories. And I think we're going to get there. Well, and you spend so much time with them and and Tolkien doesn't throw a ton of new characters at you all at once, unless you're reading The Hobbit, of course, and 13 dwarves fall through your well, door. Well, but, we were but even you, talking about that you don't, um, you and I were. You don't get, uh, you know, like David Eddings, it's basically just character vomit in the first book. and <laughs> You yeah. just get them all thrown at you. Uh, the second book, to a lesser extent. Uh, but yeah, at a certain point, you're just like, I give up. Whatever. I remember Garion. That's good enough for me. Yeah, we, we've got our core group, uh, the... The players in this prophecy that seem to be consistent across the board. We all know Silk, we know Beric, we know uh, Belgarath and Polgar and Gary and stuff. But when we start getting outside of that, you know, Todd will be very upset with us for not saying Mandarell and is one of the the core. But <laughs> right, sorry, know. Todd. Well, and then it doesn't help that each of the core guys has three names. That's true. Uh, Prince yeah, Keldar, that's true. Silk, yeah. Ambrose. Yeah, going on through there. Um, Okay, let's see. Uh, can I can I um, jump in and take say a, something? Go for it. Um, no way. Political stuff. Yay! <sighs> Ryan loves it. No, this isn't that big a deal. Um, but let me just throw something out there. Uh, draw your attention to the year that this book was published. This one was published 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so anyway, just just keep that in mind as he as David Eddings starts to describe. Uh, bad guy, Badville. Um, what he says is, Rakthal was not like other cities. The vast buildings had little of that separateness that they had in other places. It was as if the Murgos and Grolims who lived there had no sense of personal possession, so their structures lacked that insularity of individual property to be found uh, among the houses in the cities of the West. My, how very communistic. Exactly, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, so this is the 80s, written by, I believe, an American. He's yes. either American or British, right? He was from He's Washington. actually from Seattle. Oh, that's right. Okay, I did read that somewhere. 
Um, anyway, and so it's, you know, just one of those things like, oh, yeah, he might not have even done it consciously. Probably he did, but but he didn't, he didn't have to. This was at the height of East versus West. Which is funny because the entire area of Cathal Murgos feels very Arab to me as I read it. That could be a product of our time now, though. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, well, well with the deserts and with the the it, the barren and the the nothing, it just it feels very. I don't know. It's it is a product of our time, and I wonder how much, how many times in uh, in fantasy literature or science fiction, as we're reading and we enter into villains' lairs, the, or the lands, or whatever. Even though they're described fairly, I mean, there's there's room for interpretation in this. But do we immediately associate with whoever the villain is now to us and our culture? All right, this, uh, yeah, Ktuchik is obviously a Chinese banker uh, of some <laughs> kind. Yes, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. I'm trying to make a political point here <laughs> for you, Craig. Trying no, to I'm, you I'm just messing with you. Keep I'm sorry. Trying. You know what else happened in 1983? What? The police is every breath you take hit number one on the, on the billboard chart. Really? Yes, yes. That's not important. Every breath oh. you take, I'll be stuck. It's not, you. but Michael, uh, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean was number two. Random stupid facts to ruin the flow of the podcast. <laughs> Billy Dean actually That's came out in 1981. Okay. Um, All right. We kid. have one more character. You're, that, you're old. I was alive when it came out. Yes, I remember watching old. it first on MTV when they played music. I was on your little four-inch screen with the tubes with the, in the with back. The, tube, <laughs> the tubes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Ryan, go on. Moving on. We have one more character that we need to discuss briefly, and that is... This young child. Oh, okay, that sure. Can hold the orb. I just want to get some ideas from you as to what you think is going on with him, like the role he has to play. I mean, we don't even have a name for him yet. We uh, just he all just keeps oh, yeah. saying Aaron. There's only one word Aaron? he says, and that's Aaron. Um, and but he can hold the orb. And the voice in Garion's head when the building was collapsing oh, yeah. says, "If yeah. we don't save him, everything is for naught." Yeah, gotta go get him. So tell me before we get going into the next story. What are your thoughts? Give me some predictions or things regarding that character. I, I don't think I'm right um, because my, my first and initial thought when we saw Garion was he's the Riven King, obviously. But then I saw this kid who could handle the horde, and I thought, well, is he the Riven King? Really? I, I, so I don't know. I, I, maybe he's Riven as well, but I didn't think there were too many of them. So uh uh, predictions about this kid I I have none really I wonder if it's going to be something completely off the charts bizarre uh, like for instance um, maybe this is like Garion from the alternate universe <laughs> you know <laughs> something like that you know when they're talking the the, the section you quoted uh, some, some event happened and there were two courses created and which one reality follows is going to be dictated by some future event. And so I'm wondering if, yeah, this he's, is a second Garion. He's Garion from, from the alternate prophecy. Yeah this, yeah. this conversation right here is a product of the comic book universe world that we're living in that, now. That is actually a product of Fringe. Um, I was going to say it's a product was, of Star Trek. But. Fringe is one of my favorite ever TV shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's what that's a product of. Anyway, interesting, interesting thoughts. <laughs> Have I ever mentioned that time travel ruins <laughs> oh, shows? Ken, shut yes. up. Man, so many common refrains with you. Time travel ruins things. There wasn't enough punch in. I hate kissing, says Ken. I don't necessarily <laughs> mind kissing. I mean, <laughs> Oh, man, I wish I, I wish I hadn't laughed just then. That would have made a good sound bite. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Anyway, moving uh, moving on. I I don't have a ton more uh, uh, points to bring up specifically. Um, there are, we haven't really talked about it because we tend to relegate the the action sequences to Ken's expertise and, and his punch and corner and everything. Uh, but let's not entirely ignore the creative ways in which we're dealing. We find ourselves dealing with it because if you're going to write a book series that's going to be this long. Um, Battle sequences could get monotonous and boring very quickly, and they haven't. Boy, At least he, not to me. No, he does a really good job of diversifying the punching. We're gonna that that's a he diversifies the punching. Um, yeah, well, part of it is he he uh, changes out the characters a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get rid of Hetar uh, halfway through the book or so. Uh, so any fight scenes that happen after that don't happen with him. Um, Silk gets a great fight scene at the end of the book but he even though he's involved in a few things um we don't we don't hear about his fighting so it's almost like there are a ton of fight scenes but for each one david eddings will zoom in on somebody else right uh for a little bit of time so that this one at the very end uh yeah we get silk doing some great stuff in a previous one you talked about uh rel pushing the guy into the rock yeah you know stuff like that it's very easy to focus on the guys who do the the sword play, I mean, Hetar and Barak and Mandarallan are they're, they're the main fighters, and it's mm-hmm. it's easy to focus on them. And man, they're so fun. There was that there was a fight sequence earlier where the three of them go off to fight the 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 horse demon animals that is just great when <laughs> Hetar actually gets himself on the back of one of these animals that's never been oh, ridden yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was and, cool. And he's like, definitely not horses, but he's going to try to break one like a horse anyway. The the fighting actually changes. It, it goes from more physical swordplay fighting, when especially after Hetar leaves. And as Garion starts to get his powers, it's it starting to become more uh, sorcery fighting, right. more, more magical fighting. A- and... That's part of the way that that Eddings, I think, diversifies the the action, which prevents it from becoming stale. And it, it's gonna it's kind of exciting too. I mean, watching Old Wolf get into it finally, Belgarath really gets to flex his his magic muscle. Yeah, there's there's two there there are two sequences. <laughs> <That> sounds filthy. <laughs> You're terrible people. There there are two sequences in this. That's right. Yeah, that are magic. worth talking about specifically. I mean, yes, there's a lot of small battles, but we get our first battle where we actually, I actually think is the first time we're concerned that the heroes may not win when yes. they're battling this, and I can't remember is the name. I can't remember what the thing is called. Oh. This is the giant troll monster ogre thing. Right. Yeah, but they, I mean. They, they can talk and has had dealings with Belgarath in the past, and so he's got a grudge. And he starts wiping people out. Yeah, they're really struggling to to take him down. And we actually get this really random bit of magic where Polgara grabs Garion and summons a wolf. Oh, yeah. Uh, Belgarath's mother. His wife. 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 Polgara's mother. Poledra. Yeah, so now we have two wolves. And it freaks Belgarath out who's fighting as a wolf. Yeah, which I think so, is so cool. I mean, you I, always think these wizards, you know, they're these great powers and can summon lightning. He's already done this fire and lightning thing, and you're like, and then he transforms into a wolf to fight anyway. It's like, wow. I, I have to mention also, it, it's a great bit of writing by Eddings, is that here they are in this fight, and Garion turns around, and all of a sudden there's a wolf, and 
your first reaction is, holy crap, now they're dealing with a wolf until you realize, oh, that's not a bad wolf. That's their wolf, you know, and he jumps right. into it. And and, and so, yeah. She, what, and, was, what was your other thing, Ryan? The other ba- the other sequence that's worth talking about is the uh, is the battle between um, Belgarath and Katuchik. Yes, because it's the first time we see wizard these oh uh, yeah wizard duel going really really going at each other, and I'm trying to, I, I'm hoping that I can find this quickly. If not, then we'll just go on. Um, but they actually describe the battle, and rather than being this very physical, you know thrusting of wands and diving and right. running around whatever. It's pretty much like it's a, a battle st- of wills. It's a staring yeah. contest between each other with this will and it's causing the air around them to become violently uh, very violent and very dangerous to anyone in the near like right. you know Polgar is keeping Gary in like, back hey, keeping him through back, back saying no. Okay. Like, there is a description in there of uh, uh, of uh, Katuchik expelling some sort of fire like as he is Raising his hands, fire is coming out, and right. and uh, Belgareth, despite what he said about not having to use your hands, he does the same he thing. Does, yeah. He puts his hands out, and lightning comes forth, and that's kind of what's doing battle. So I actually kind of did get not not a uh, not a physical battle in like you get in the Harry Potter movies where everybody's dancing around, basically sword fighting with their wands. Uh, but they did have their hands up, and I did get a little Harry Potter vibe when uh, Harry and, and Voldemort's wands connect. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what I was picturing a little bit, but I, I, I could be off. I was thinking when, when the movie is made of of this of Magician's Gambit, it's going to be very uh, Voldemort versus yeah. Dumbledore in the fifth Harry Potter movie where they're all, you know, they're casting and they're doing this, and there's fire yeah. and there's water. and so It looks like Ryan found it. I did. I found it. said... The sorcerer and the magician faced each other in the center of the room, surrounded by blazing lights and waves of flame and darkness. Garion's mind grew numb under the repeated detonations of raw energy as the two struggled. That's awesome. That's, yeah. He sensed that their battle was only partially visible and his blows were being and that blows were being struck which he could not see, could not even imagine. The air in the turret room seemed to crackle and hiss. Strange images appeared and vanished, flickering at the extreme limits of visibility. Vast faces, enormous hands, and things Garion could not name. The turret itself trembled as the two dreadful old men ripped open the fabric of reality itself to grasp weapons of imagination or delusion. That's awesome. Yeah. What a great description. That's that's good writing right there. I don't care who you are. Yeah, that's... That's good. Even if you're not Tolkien. <laughs> uh, you guys. Well... That's, that is... The, yeah, that's some high-quality uh, battle writing there, and it's well worth, you know, well worth your, your time to get there. We talked in the first book about his writing style, and we've kind of left it alone since then. I don't want to get into it now because we're coming up on uh, on our time. Uh, but but I think that's something we ought to get back into in books four and five. Um, he's uh, he's not always poetic, but he can be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. he, he gets really good sometimes. Anyway. Still in the humor, still there and everything. Oh, yeah, and we can... Yeah, I, I underlined about ten different things that just made me guffaw at dead work. Dead is dead. Yeah. and, and Allen, the the play between the two of them. <laughs> so uh, right. Well, anyway, we but we really had better wrap it up. So before we go, um, I had mentioned last time, I, I, I can't remember which country was it that I highlighted. Was it Germany? We're big in Germany now. Yeah. Um, yeah. This week, I want to highlight our friends down in Australia 
and uh, and just say thank you guys for listening. We had a great um, spurt of downloads from Australia, which usually tells me that there's a couple people. I'm thinking somebody told their friends and family, so thank you, whoever you are, because um, whenever we get that little spurt like that, I know somebody has downloaded several episodes of, uh, of our podcast, and, and multiple people have done it. So, um, yeah, we do appreciate you listening in. Uh, make sure that you guys down there in Australia are following us on Facebook and sending us little notes, uh, let it, letting us know what you think. Uh, head to our website, thelegendariumpodcast.com. You can send us a note that way as well. We want to hear from you wherever you are, Australia or anywhere else. Australia, thank you. We won't. I won't be doing the accent. Don't for just you. don't. <laughs> Australia, just by the way, the home of John Flanagan, author of The Ranger's Apprentice. Phenomenal book series. Love that book series. Uh, yeah, Ken's been Ken's been bothering us for a few days to get on that. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so I'm sure we'll be highlighting another country uh, or state coming up next week because there always seems to be one that's that uh, just jumps ahead of everybody else. I keep sending stuff to Kim Jong Un, hoping that he'll <laughs> he'll get it and he'll like it, and We're then he'll make huge. everybody else in North Korea listen to We're it. Huge in North Korea. Yeah, obviously. Um, hey, we make a good torture device, too. All of a sudden, we're blowing up North Korea. Wait, no, not really. <laughs> That's a terrible, terrible That's thing to say. That's a terrible analogy. Wow. Uh, all right. Thank you, everybody around the world, uh, for listening. And we will be back next week with book four, which is called... Um, uh, not Enchanter's Endgame. That's the fifth. It is Castle of Wizardry. Castle of Wizardry. Uh, so brush up on your chess terms, and we will see you next week. The Legendarium Podcast is sponsored by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. Follow along with our current series or enjoy some of the classics by visiting thelegendariumpodcast.com where you can sign up for your free trial membership. Click the sponsor link on our website for a free audiobook.